the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 155, covering the week of January 25th through February 1st, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can go to abbevilleinstitute.org, give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll also get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also, download our free web uh, I'm sorry, not our free web app, our free mobile app, excuse me, our free mobile application. Just go to your favorite app store, whether it's uh, Google Play, iTunes, Apple, Apple uh, Store, wherever you get your apps for your mobile devices, and you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. Again, it's free of charge, so you're going to want to do that. Also, don't forget that we exist on your generous contributions alone, so, alone, so if you want to make a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Under that, you'll have donor options, and you can donate monthly or annually or give us a one-time gift. There, are All those options are available. And if you don't want to uh, pay online, you can also send us a check. So all that information is up there on the website. Go on out and check that out. You can also get your Abbeville Institute apparel. If you go to that same button that says support, it'll say shop. Click on that. It'll take you out, and you can get T-shirts, polo shirts, hats, golf towels, a lot of fleece uh, coats. Now, I know that won't work in Chicago, but of course, we probably don't have a lot of uh, li- uh, <laughs> a lot of Abbeville Institute people in Chicago. Might have some, you know, might have some, some people in Chicago where it's negative 75. But hey, the fleece will work in the South, right? So if you get your fleece, you'll stay warm in the Southern winter and you have your Abbeville Institute apparel, your logo on it. It is embroidered. It's not uh, screen printed. So this stuff lasts. It's great stuff. So go out and get your Abbeville Institute apparel and uh, show your support for the Institute. Uh, also, just want to say a couple of things, a couple of new things we've done. First, if you like our Facebook page, we have a group now, and you have to uh, ask to be part of the group, but it is the official Abbeville Institute group. It's there for members to go in and uh, converse about things. Um, so you, it is for it is through approval, So, but you, you do have to ask to be part of it, but we do have that. And also, this last week, I conducted a free online uh, Jefferson Seminar on Albert Taylor Bledsoe's Davis a Traitor. It's the first of four sessions. So we've got three sessions coming up. One on the 5th, one on the 12th, one on the 19th of February. They're on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. It is free of charge again. You go on out, we give the link on uh, on the uh, Facebook page, on Twitter. You just click on it. it, takes you over to YouTube, and you can watch the session. So some people have said, you know, we'd like to attend uh, Abbeville Institute conferences and other things, but they're either too expensive or, you know, we can't get there because of time, whatever the case may be. Well, this is a conference, essentially, uh, with a speaker, myself, for this. And we're going to do more of these with other speakers. But this was a trial run, and it was widely wildly successful. So uh, we've got three more sessions coming up. You can follow along if you get Bledsoe's Is Davis a Traitor. It's, uh, again, a, a, a public domain book, so there's no cost for it. Uh, just go out and look that up. Albert Taylor Bledsoe Is Davis a Traitor. And uh, do the do the reading, and uh, I'll talk about, uh, I think it's chapters uh, 5 through 13, I want to say, for this next, or 5 through 12 for this next session. And so we're going to go through that. We'll finish all 20 chapters in the four sessions, and it's going to be a grand time. And you can come on and ask questions. You can you can converse with people that like mine and people uh, in the chat window. So it's a great time. 
you're going to want to want to come on out to that again free of charge no cost to you and you just uh, follow along and watch as we're doing it so those are a couple of great things we're doing we've got another great initiative that's in the works hopefully by the summer this will be out and uh, we've got some cool stuff going on summer school is going to be announced soon a lot of great things going on at the institute so just kind of give you a, a a rundown of some some things that are happening in the background. We talk about the website here on this on this podcast every week, but we do other things too. We we had a you know Jefferson seminar uh, in uh, South Carolina recently. We we're doing things behind the scenes, and all of your tax deductible contributions help all of these things happen. Um, so uh, we are uh, out there trying to help everyone explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And your contributions contribute to that. So if you listen to this podcast, please share it around. Also, you rate it on iTunes and other places. Uh, that will help get the get the word out. It's, uh, it's valuable and beneficial uh, to do this. Okay, well, let's talk about the week that was. There's a few interesting things about this particular week that are kind of a side note on these, on these issues. Um, and so I'll bring that stuff in. But we had a really interesting uh, set of articles this week, I think. The first was actually a paper that Dr. Livingston gave at one of our Jefferson seminars uh, a few couple of years ago. Um, and it's the Southern Critique of Centralization. This is actually his pet project. And the core of the Institute originally was to get into this particular part of Southern, Southern history and the Southern tradition. And that was this resistance to centralization. What did that mean? What does that mean for the future of America? Does it have any value today in 21st century America uh, to have this resistance to centralization? Of course, the Institute was founded now 16 years ago, uh, long before the 10th Amendment Center was founded. Um, and long before I think that we had this, this real push uh, in the last decade or so to start discussing this idea of, well, what can the states do um, to try to resist unconstitutional federal legislation. I mean, we see it all the time. Whether you're on the left or the right, there's a multitude of issues that uh, people in the, on the different ideological spectrum don't think the federal government should be doing. And so what can those states do about it? Um, and not just that, the, the idea that somehow having a decentralized political culture would actually foster, foster, not encourage, goodwill among people. Uh, and the reason it would foster goodwill among people is because you, you have good fences make good neighbors. I mean, a lot of people don't realize, but Robert Frost, Robert uh, Frost was named after Robert E. Lee first, uh, Robert Edward Frost. But not just that, um, he was a uh, an ardent Southern sympathizer. Uh, and good fences make good neighbors. You know, you have these good fences up. You you stay in your backyard. We stay in our backyard, and we're we're good with that. You you do what you do in your backyard, and we do in ours. And then you don't have any conflict. It's only when you start to infringe on, try to encourage you to go into somebody else's backyard that you have problems. Uh, and so, this idea of decentralization and creating a political culture and a political climate in an area that's, of course, when I say creating, it's already there, but creating this barrier between these political cultures would actually encourage goodwill among people. Um, if, if people in the South didn't think California was trying to govern them at all times, well, they wouldn't even think about California. Now, I can't say that people in the North wouldn't think about the South because they do all the time. It's one of the funniest things Clyde Wilson ever said, you know, when people in Oregon were worrying about what's happening in the South and that Southerners could go months, years, maybe even a whole lifetime without ever thinking about Oregon, um, which is true. I mean, 
Most people that I speak with in the South don't even care what happens in Oregon or California. They're just worried about what happens down the street. And I think most Americans are that way, whether they're in the North or the West or the South or the Midwest. They care about what happens in their own backyard. And uh, you know, social media has changed some of that. And of course, quote unquote, national newscasts and other things. But fewer and fewer people are watching the national news anymore. Um, and so th- there is this fostering in some ways of the local. Because, you know, the only newspaper I get now is my local newspaper. I don't get anything nationally. And, and uh, I particularly don't care what happens in most other states of the country. Uh, so of the United States, I really just don't care. Um, I, I care what happens in my backyard and what's going on here and my neighbors and the people that I know. I care about those people. And so this is where the Southern critique of decentralization works. And it's a wonderful piece because he gets into the historical background of this and how this could certainly apply to the modern age when we're looking at, well, how do we think about problems in the modern age? How do we, how do we conceptualize these issues we're confronting and how do we deal with those problems? Um, should we be cultural imperialists, in other words? Should we be political imperialists? These are big questions. And I think questions that the Southern tradition can help answer. Um, The fact that people like Nathaniel Macon left his plantation once a month. He checked his mail once a month. He had a chapel on his plantation. I mean, we we can talk about plantations. And, of course, when you bring up the plantation, that that immediately, how dare you talk about plantation? You use the P word. The P word, plantation. Um, But the idea of the plantation as this separate unit um, is something Jefferson. I mean, look, Jefferson, his plantation was his country. Virginia was his country, but his plantation was more than that. Right? I mean, this is the center of his world. And for most Southerners, that was the case. Whether it was your small farm, your plantation, your little town, that was your world. You really didn't care. And to have outside forces come in and try to tell you how to organize your world when you didn't care how anyone else in the world organized theirs was a major, major problem for these people. And so that was uh, a part of this Southern uh, interest in decentralization. Heck, the agrarians were talking about regional government in the 1930s as a way to combat this uh, potential for over-centralization, industrial centralization. I mean, the agrarian critique actually has something to do with this management style, the centralized management style of the new, of, of New England, right? I mean, look, industrialization creates efficiency, supposedly, and centralization. The agrarian life is not efficient. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Southern labor was not efficient. This is something that people had to wrestle with in the South. It wasn't efficient at all, no matter where you went. Southerners were not efficient. And New Englanders who came into the South and tried to deal with that recognize that Southerners really weren't efficient. Why? Because there was an entirely different way of life and doing things. And it had to do primarily with the fact that it was a slower pace of life. Some of that was fostered by climate and geography. Look, when it's 110 degrees with humidity, you're not moving fast. You can't move fast. So your way of life is going to be altered dramatically by the climate and the geography of the place that wherein you reside. And so part of it was that, but part of it was cultural a different pace of life, a different understanding of the here and and the hereafter. And so that pace of life doesn't doesn't work well with northeastern New England industrial models. Um, Even when you get into the New South and the way that Southerners viewed factory work, it was entirely different 
than the way Northerners viewed factory work and, and your eight-hour day and what you would, your breaks and other things. I mean, Southerners like to have a leisurely pace of life, and they weren't as efficient. They didn't get stuff done as fast, and you just had to deal with that. I mean, stuff got done when it got done. It wasn't lazy. It was a conception of life and pace of life that was more important. It didn't mean they didn't work hard. They did work hard, but they had to work hard at their own pace. And this was across the board. It didn't matter if you were talking about white Southerners, black Southerners. It was across the board. Inefficiency <laughs> was part of the agrarian life. A time to ponder, time to think, time to reflect on, again, the here and the hereafter. And the process of planting something and waiting for the seasons and the harvest and these other things, it creates a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a rhythm to life. It's a different kind of rhythm to life than mass production. And so as industrialization came to the South, and I would say that this way of life is no longer there in the South as much because Southerners have been forced to accept a New England model, whether it's banking, finance, industry. And so we're on the New England model of efficiency now. Uh, when I drive to work and I'm listening to the, the local uh, talk station on, on the radio, they have a commercial on there for a company that's about efficiency, and it's got this guy that comes on in a Midwestern accent. Uh, for those who get it done, you've got to go out and get your stuff because this is efficiency. You know what makes me nervous? Efficiency. Th this is being aired in a southern town, but you've got this Midwesterner on there, and this is supposed to be uh, the guy that uh, is uh, is driving people into this business, and he's talking about efficiency. I, what, what scares me is efficiency. I've got to have stuff to get it done. The only person I can trust is me. And this is exactly how he's speaking into the into the microphone. And, I mean, it's alien. It's alien to the South. But yet this is being forced into a Southern radio station. And somehow this is supposed to be attractive. Now, I think it is. I mean, people started. But the remarkable thing about that, if you think about that radio short and the language and the accent used, it shows that. It's still the Midwest or New England that is the center of efficiency. And if you're not part of that, I mean, you're not efficient. My response is I would never use that company because I don't want to be a Midwestern efficient uh, model, right? So, uh, But he, this, this is part of it. This is this critique of centralization. You have these different areas in political culture and, and regional cultures that can, that can coexist. That phrase is left. We like to coexist. Yeah, we do too. We want to coexist. Just don't tell us how to live. We won't tell you how to live. Don't tell us how to live. And if you're in those states that are horrible, move to a state that's better. You can vote with your feet. That's a great thing about federalism and decentralization. Move. Get out of the state that you don't like. Stop trying to uh, to affect everyone with your ideas. Go to the state that you do like. Because I can guarantee you, if you're a leftist, there's a state that fits your needs. If you're someone who's on the right, there's a state that fits your needs. There's a political culture that suits you. So move there and go get a job there. That would be the that would be the smart thing to do. Uh, but no, most people now just want to plant themselves, and some of that is because of the fact that we have uh, a government that will allow you to do that through various programs. So this Southern critique of centralization is an interesting piece. I'd highly recommend you read it. Again, a paper that was presented at a Jefferson seminar. So these are some of the things we do behind the scenes. This is some of the work that we get out of that. So I would definitely read Dr. Livingston's paper on that. Um, and then we, a couple of interesting things. First and foremost, one of the things that uh, we don't do well enough 
in our, from our side is make fun of the other side. Making fun of the other side is fantastic. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why you've had some of these major talk show hosts become so popular, and I'll just use an example of, of Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is wrong about some things. He's right about some things. Uh, but one of the things he did well when he was younger, and he still does some of it, is make fun of people. Make fun of the left, the voices he uses, the examples he gives. I mean, it's so funny. It's funny going, Mark Stein. Mark Stein, who is, I think, funnier, one of the funniest people on, on, uh, in major talk shows, um, the thing that he does well is make fun of things. Mockery. Mock these people because they are worthy of mockery. And so the, the piece that we had on Tuesday, it's a book review of a little book that Shotwell Publishing has published by Lewis uh, Lieberman, Snowflake Buddies, ABC Leftism for Kids. It's a short little, it's a, a short, little, uh, thin little book. Um, it's, it's cartoons. Uh, he, uh, Mr. Lieberman has written for us before. He's done some graphic work for us before. He does funny things. And uh, if you've gone to our Facebook page, you know, we had one just recently where it's got a guy out there, a crazy-looking guy, cutting down a rose with a chainsaw. And the rose is the southern tradition. you got to cut it down because it needs, has a few thorns. Um, he's had the one where you've had uh, the, uh, the lefties decapitating with the guillotine uh, southern monuments. Because I mean, this is this is what they're going to do, right? You got to you got to decapitate these monuments. It's the French Revolution. So he's done some stuff like this, very funny stuff. Um, and so this little book is designed for kids, but it's also really for adults. It's to make fun of of the left. These people are worthy of mockery. These people are worthy of calling them out for what they are: stupid, idiots. Uh, they are. And so this little book is fantastic for that. And Michael uh, Potts did a great job reviewing it, the title, The Devil Hates Mockery. And if the devil hates mockery, uh, and of course the left hates mockery, is there some, is there some kind of coincidence there? Um, but he brings up one, the, one part in this book, and one thing that um, uh, Lieberman brings up. He says, take, for example, K is for Kara, the kindergarten teacher, complete with a cartoon of a teacher pointing to a board with a peace and love sign followed by 2 plus 2 equals 5, and A, B, C, D, L, G, B, L, B, G, T. Uh, and it, there's a little poem. Care of the kindergarten teacher molds young minds with Marxist ideology. She happily happily blinds the public school system she devoutly defends and unknowingly to hell a generation she sends. He says, the point is dead serious and true. Teaching an ideology that denies reality, denies any transcendent source of morality, denies any intrinsic limitations on human will, or on human nature, communicates to children a demonic ideology that if taken seriously is inevitably corrupting? It's true. These things are what's happening in our schools, and you see it. I mean, the, the thing that I mean, one of the f people that everyone likes to make fun of now is like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I, I pity her because she's a product of the American education system. She's a product of it. She can't help herself. I mean, she can't help the fact that she's so stupid because she's never been taught anything except slogans and ideology. So she doesn't know anything. This is We have a whole generation of people running around. Now, not everyone in, the, in this generation, but the majority of a generation running around that have never been taught, number one, how to think critically, and number two, never really been taught anything at all. They don't have any life skills. All they know how to do is go on social media and run their mouths about and, and I'll give you an example. 
and this is something I, I might write about it, but it might just be too stupid to write about. But she was on a a, a a talk show the other day. I think it was on Monday of this week, maybe Monday, Tuesday of this week. And she said that um, this is this is her statement now. Confederate monuments were built in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s by women of the KKK who were enraged. Okay, this is her statement. Confederate monuments and Regardless of what people think, these things weren't built around the Civil War. That's what she said. So Confederate monuments were built in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Now, that's an amazing statement. I mean, there are, it's, and, and I wrote in my uh, personal email uh, the other day. To, it's kind of like uh, when E.E. E. Cummings wrote that Warren Harding, when he died, that the only man, woman, or child who wrote a simple declarative sentence with seven grammatical errors is dead. Um in this particular case, Ocasio-Cortez continues to, I mean, she's the only person that can go on TV or the radio and make a statement with, you know, seven factually incorrect errors and still everyone claps. Oh, yes, yes, this is so smart. And it, it, you listen to the interview and, the, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the stupid interviewer doesn't even know any more than she does. Well, I mean, you can't fault them for that. They don't know any more than she does. The statement was so stupid, it doesn't deserve a response. Uh, but uh, there's so many 40s, 50s, and 60s. That's when Confederate monuments were built. I mean, there was a few built that time. They were built by the KKK? Really? <laughs> uh, they were built by women who were enraged? Well, I guess if you count being mad at the Yankees that killed their family members, I mean, they might be enraged. But they were built by enraged women? Enraged women. And they weren't built around the time of the Civil War? I guess, you know, this 1870s and 80s, 20 years after... Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, this is this is how. St- yeah, they, sure, they weren't built in 1861. The war wasn't over yet. They were built after the war, yeah, but not a hundred. Not all. I mean, she's saying essentially that all of them were built a hundred years after the war was over because these people were enraged. And of course, what she's saying they're enraged by is the civil rights movement. That's not true at all. <laughs> I mean, this is just so stupid. The fact that monuments were being built all over the country. Look, we could, we could talk about the monuments thing all day, but this is just stupid, stupid, stupid. But this is why something like Louis Lieberman's uh, the, the Leftism for ABC, Snowflake Buddies, and you know, a Leftism for ABC's, uh, ABC Leftism for Kids, I should say, this is why this book is essential and why we need to do more mockery of these nimrods because this is what they are, mockery. Uh, make fun of these dummies. Uh, it's it's almost to the point that uh, they, they can't parody themselves. I mean, a parody wouldn't even be as good as reality. And that's where we get to um, the piece on Thursday. Let me just piggyback into that very quickly. Orwell's America. This is written by Alphonse Louisvin, and uh, he's uh, one of our uh, one of our long long tenured authors in the in the pro Southern movement, a Southern tradition. He's a, he's a literary professor, and uh, he, he, he wrote a piece um, a little while ago. We actually wrote it in the 90s, um, and we talked about uh, uh, Green, Julian Green, and a wonderful piece. Uh, but this particular uh, piece is on the AHA statement from 2017, which was condemning Confederate monuments. Uh, I wrote about this right after the piece came out. Uh, but it's always good to revisit these things because essentially what we're living in, and the title of the piece is Orwell's America. We've got Orwell's America. 1984 was not supposed to be a handbook for how to run the world, right? But this is what we've got. 
Um, and the, the funny thing, the funniest thing about this, and so the piece itself is good, but I want to talk about a response to the piece. One of our, one of our uh, listeners, uh, members of the Institute, went out and, and emailed the president of the American Historical Association, emailed the president and said, look, I read your statement. Here's the problems I have with it. And I'm not going to read the entire email that they sent. Um, but essentially, they, they he brought up the fact that uh, these Southerners were, were Americans, uh, that they were just doing their duty, et cetera, et cetera. The response came back fairly quickly from James Grossman, who is the executive director of the AHA. Um, so this is what Mr. Grossman, <laughs> what Mr. Grossman, or Dr. Grossman, who uh, has written a couple of books on 20th century African-American history. This is what uh, Dr. Grossman said. Dear Mr. So-and-so, you state with reference to Confederate generals and government officials who were graduates of the United States Military Academy that, quote, all of the men abided by the teachings of West Point. Please note that they took up arms against the government of the United States of America. I have visited the United States Military Academy on more than one occasion, and we count their faculty among our membership. I can assure you that their teachings have never included the acceptability of their alumni taking up arms against the government to which they had sworn allegiance. Uh, so that was his response. That was Dr. Grossman's response. So this individual writes back and asks for him to, to resign. Uh, but listen to that response. It's, it's seething with a haughty, holier-than-thou position. It's the the treasury of virtue. Uh, It's condescending. It's, uh, and uh, this is what academics are. It's thin-skinned. He's been to the United States Military Academy a number of times, and their faculty are among our supporters, and they have never taught that it's been acceptable for these people to take up arms against the United States government. No, but uh, what, what this author didn't point out, and what, of course, I guess Mr. Grossman doesn't, Dr. Grossman doesn't know, is that when he said that all men abided by the teachings of West Point, they were taught secession at West Point. The textbook they used, Rawls, textbook on the Constitution, actually said the secession was legal. So they were, <laughs> they were doing what they, I mean, they, they were following the dictates of the American federal tradition, right? The American political, and legal tradition. So Dr. Grossman has no idea what he's talking about. And the fact that the United States Military Academy, which uh, the one of the main uh, faculty members there is, I mean, he's awful on this particular topic. Uh, he's one of the ones that did the PragerU video on uh, why the war was all about slavery. Uh, of course that individual is not going to teach because he's, Politically and ideologically skewed. Um, so they didn't, and the other thing, they didn't swear allegiance to the government of the United States. They swore allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. If you go back and you look at their oath, their military oath, they swore to the Constitution of the United States, not to the government. So there is a major difference there. Uh, you. <laughs> You don't swear to swearing to uphold the government. It's like swearing to uh, you know. It's the same type of oath that the Nazis took to to uh, support Hitler. They didn't support Germany. They supported Hitler. So you want these U.S. soldiers to support the government? 
No, you're supporting the Constitution. If the government violates the Constitution, well, then you support the Constitution over the government. And that's the whole point of, of, of your oath of, uh, uh, as an officer. You swear to uphold the Constitution. Not the president, not the government. You're not swearing to an individual or to an institution. You're swearing to the Constitution. So uh, Dr. Grossman has no idea what he's talking about, which is par for the course. Uh, so um, his email address, by the way, is jgrossman at historians.org. Um, so you can email him if you would like, jgrossman at historians.org, and uh, tell him what you think. But that was the response. And so, you know, just hilarious. Uh, the other piece that we had, and I'm, I'm running short on time here, so I, I don't want to go too far over. Um, the other piece that we had, a couple other pieces, one was on Kentucky's Confederate Sons. This is by Jerry Saldier, and it's great because a lot of people don't, uh, don't think about Kentucky as a Confederate state. It happens all the time. Um, people uh, don't associate Kentucky with, with the Confederacy, but of course it was. And in Jefferson Davis from Kentucky, you have the large Jefferson Davis Monument in Kentucky, which is essentially essentially a, a replica of the Washington Monument, uh, it's a large obelisk. Not as not as large as the uh, as the Washington Monument itself, but a a real interesting monument. And of course, you've had others, John Breckinridge, who's from Kentucky, and a lot of people. Um, but one of the things that he actually provides a link for in this particular piece is that is a letter. Uh, from Karl Marx. And he says here, quote, Is it merely a coincidence that a man like Davis would, in later memoirs, compare the high-handed behavior of the Lincoln administration to that of Maximilian Rose-Pierre? Maybe. Is it a coincidence that Lincoln would, on the occasion of his re-election, receive an effusive letter of congratulations from the then-obscure political theorist named Karl Marx? Maybe. Then again, maybe not. Uh, Marx... Marx wrote it in 1864, congratulating Lincoln, and he actually linked to the letter. And it talks about how, you know, the workers of America are behind the North. I mean, so when you're supporting the North, you know, we talk about, you know, people that support you, and this is, well, I mean, you got the, this is what the left likes to do. Well, these people support you, uh, so obviously you, you attract bad people. Well, here you have this letter from Marx, uh, which is, of course, uh, is, you want Marxists to support you? Communists? And the communists are supporting Lincoln. Uh, it's a wonderful little, little link in there. And I like this piece because it gets into um, the uh, the fact that Kentucky was very Southern. Uh, you know, Robert Penn Warren um, from, uh, from Kentucky, for example. I mean, Kentucky was a Southern state, uh, still is a Southern state. The people of Kentucky, a lot of uh, places in Kentucky... And so we forget that part of it, that part of, of Confederate history. And then on the other hand, we have uh, the last piece of the week, Paul Yarbrough's Texas is going to be bluer than a blue bonnet. He's talking about the neocons and uh, how it's not really the left that's to worry about in this transformation of the South into something else. It's the neoconservatives. It is true. The left can be dealt with. It's just what Jefferson used to say. Look, we can deal with big government. We can deal with big banks separately. You put them together, you got a problem. The problem with uh, with what's going on in the South is you've got the lefties, who are, of course, going to attack. Uh, you've got Karl Marx. They're going to attack the traditional South. But then when you put the neoconservatives in the mix, they are the agents of the change because Southerners keep voting for these Republicans um, and thinking that these people think like them, and they don't. And they go in, and they're, they're the... 
they are the uh, wolves in sheep's clothing because they come in and they're the ones that are actually part and parcel of this uh, process to purge the South of any Confederate symbols. Uh, when you've got Karl Rove talking about one of his favorite historians is Eric Foner. I mean, you're in trouble. These are the quote-unquote conservatives. You see, so it's that group that's more of the problem than the left. You expect it out of the left. I mean, you can deal with the left. You can mock them. You can make fun of them because it's easy. I mean, look, they're just a bunch of nincompoops. You can deal with them. But what, what's hard to do is when you get the people who are supposed to be on your side, who are now uh, advocating tearing these things down, they become the agents of change, and they become the problems. And so uh, he points out that you've got you know, these, these political class in Texas, they're destroying themselves. And um, they're, going to, they're going to be having, as he says, their own Beto moment. But um, they're the ones who are going to be facing the wrath because the left won't, won't keep you around. They'll, you become a useful idiot for them. You become the useful idiot. Okay, well, yeah, we're going to agree with why I do this. And then when it's done, we're still booting you out of office anyways. And we're getting one of our Marxists in there. Uh, and we're going to go even further than what you would. So um, the point is, don't be the useful idiot. Don't be the useful idiot for these people. Tell them that they're wrong uh, and stand up to them because, I mean, it's easy. to they're, they're, they're paper in the wind. You, just, you can push them over with a finger. There's, their positions are so stupid, not based in reality, uh, that you can push them over with a finger. But yet, when you get people that, well, I mean, it's well-meaning people. Well, I mean, uh, we got to, we got to, we got to be, uh, you know, nice and, and we got to get along with people. It's well-meaning people. Uh, the problem. Be proud of uh, of uh, the Southern decentralist tradition, the Southern traditions, and all that they are uh, that uh, that are worthy of being proud of. It's a there, there's a lot of great things in the Southern tradition. Be proud of those things and stand up for it, uh, because I mean, there's there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. And I think that uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of in having Confederate ancestors, for example. They were fighting for a cause they thought was right. Union soldiers were saying this after the war. The people they were being shot at. And yet nowadays we have these descendants of these men. Uh, we can't have a plaque up honoring them anymore uh, because they've been told in their education. Again, it's it's not their fault. They've been they've been brainwashed in the in the schools. All these things are wrong. So uh, that's what I like about this piece. It really points that out. We had a great week at the institute. A lot of good stuff. And I hope you enjoy our articles. Um, you know, if you if you want to contribute something, send us something. I mean, we'll, we'll consider things. Uh, we always are looking for new writers and new people who are interested in the South and the Southern tradition. So send us. There's information all down the website on how to submit uh, articles for our consideration. Uh, we'd love to have uh, hear from you, and um, we appreciate all of your support. So until next time, good day. <laughs>